Welcome back, everybody. This is episode 19 of Jointly Venturing. And today we're going to return to the issue of tax, you know, the world's most exciting discussion point. And it may sound like the most boring issue in the world, but in fact, the tax system of the world as it is today is, let's just say, far from perfect, uh, far too easy to evade, uh, far too easy to... Uh, let's just say, avoid the attention of the authorities in far too many countries. And as a result, quite literally trillions upon trillions of dollars are stashed right now in tax havens around the world, not subject to taxation. Um, according to the excellent book that I would most certainly recommend everyone read called The Hidden Wealth of Nations, The Scourge of Tax Havens by Gabriel Zucman, um, up to 8% of household financial wealth is held in tax havens around the world, um, equaling as much as $8 trillion U.S. dollars. Uh, when we combine that reality with the fact that 60 of the largest companies in the United States in 2018 paid no, effectively no taxes, including some of the biggest com companies on the planet, we clearly have a situation whereby trillions upon trillions of dollars earned are not being taxed, and as a result, public services and other things that could be done with that tax money um, are not able to be done. One of the issues that we want people to think about at Jointly Venturing in Oneness World is this whole issue of the potential of a global tax structure. And if there was such a structure, who would administer it? How much would you have to pay? Would everybody pay? Would there be sliding scales? Would there be pro progressive levels of taxation? Who would determine what to spend it on? Would there be a royal parliament in place that actually devoted attention to that issue? And a whole range of other issues. Or should we simply keep the system that we have today, which is largely based on the nation state, which is based on the ability of individual tax regimes to tax people resident in those countries, primarily their citizens, with so many loopholes and so many escape hatches that quite literally trillions of dollars is able to seep outside of the system. That's the system we have today. So today we are extremely fortunate to have with us um, Dino Farinato, who has worked in the field of tax globally for a very long time, and um, we're going to get his point of view as a tax expert on both what I was just talking about in terms of a global tax structure, but also just more broadly trying to help us understand the nature of the international taxation system, how it emerged, where it might be going, and the sort of specific things that could be done in order to make it more equitable um, for everyone. So Dino, welcome to Jointly Venturing. Thanks, Scott. Can I um, take issue with one of the facts you started with? Yeah, sure. Um, you described tax as a boring subject. I completely reject that uh, assertion. It's uh, it's a, um, something that I've spent a large part of my life doing and uh, is something that I'm um, enthusiastic about. I am too, but you know, for the average listener, it's probably quite boring. Yeah, fair but we're going to make it un very unboring. We'll try and sexy tax up a bit. That's it. That's okay. it. No attacks on tax. Excellent. So tell us about your, your experience in this field. So I'm a lawyer. I've been working in tax for about 35 years, um, both here, and here in Australia as well as uh, internationally. I've worked in Indonesia and in Hong Kong. Um, working for big accounting firms, uh, an international law firm, and then many years as the head of tax of a large corporate based in Hong Kong. So I've had a broad-ranging exposure to tax issues, um, being a, a global head of tax for a big corporate um, with international operations. It sort of gave me an idea of the the... the, the the whole world of tax. Right, right. So how would you characterize the current system in terms of the ability of 
national tax authorities to access uh, court. Let's start with corporate profits and then move into the issue of just privately held wealth in tax havens. I mean, where have there been improvements made in recent decades? Are we getting closer to a situation where money can no longer be hidden? Um, how far are we from uh, issues such as a wealth tax that's being proposed now in by several campaigns in the U.S. Democratic Party, um, among others, and all of those types of issues. All, all right. Well, let's start with the the, the 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 sort of the general rules to start with. So, mm-hmm. I think we're in a period of great flux at the moment in terms of the way in which the international tax system is is working um, or not working. Um, it, it's it's fair to say that. Um, Corporate profits for many years have been um, uh, taxed with a system that is um, been set up to really cope with the flow of goods backwards and forwards, and the sort of the the increase in the global economy and also the move to a digital economy has thrown quite a few challenges towards the. Um, the tax systems around the world. Um, but things are changing. So, um, you know, we started in the sort of 50s and 60s with the really the rise of tax havens. Um, they've been around, you know, they're a, a, a 20th century phenomenon, but uh, they were used um, in a number of, um, or they were set up predominantly in a number of, UK colonies around the world as uh, as ways in which um, corporate large international operations could um, set up operate set up operations in a low tax environment. So, do we ultimately have the United Kingdom to thank for the, the global phenomenon of tax havens? I mean, I've heard that something like eighty or ninety percent of the flags of countries where you find tax havens have the Union Jack in it. Is that yeah, still true? Yeah, absolutely right. If you look at the... It's the, much more a British thing than a Swiss thing or a Liechtenstein thing or a Luxembourg thing. Well, the European tax havens or the countries that have very effective tax rules, if you don't want to call them tax havens, um, have their own origins. But when you look around the world and you look at the, you know, the, the, the most commonly used tax haven of the British Virgin Islands or the Cayman Islands, um, you know, they all have uh, UK origins. Mm-hmm. Um, London can often be described as being the, uh, the birthplace of the, um, of the tax haven. Um, so I think, you know, the, the Brits have certainly got a bit to... Uh, to uh, take credit for. Mm-hmm. Just going to move your microphone for one second. There you go. Sorry. Um, but, but but the you know the, there've been plenty of new players brought into the into the uh, into the game. So um, you know particularly in the Asia Pacific region. So um, you know the the Cook Islands, the Samoas, the um, uh, the Mauritius, the Seychelles. There's plenty of names that we Singapore. Any any. Singapore, any place that's got a uh, you know, a, a, a palm frond uh, on the beaches can be uh, can be uh, characterised as um, having potential. Um, but yeah, the the everyone's got into the game. So are any of them like actively leaving the game? Absolutely, it's getting harder. You know, tax havens that have been used. Um, for many years, there's a whole bunch of rules that are changing that are making their life, um, the, the level of compliance much more significant. So um, there are initiatives predominantly driven out of the OECD that are making the European tax havens much more um, concerned about their, their position in the global economy. So... Places like Luxembourg, um, um, Liechtenstein, all of the Switzerland, pl- Switzerland itself, mm-hmm. yeah. So there's there there's initiatives that are making um, setting up in in tax havens much much more difficult than than it used to be. Well, I, I guess you know one of the interesting things, of course, is about tax havens is that 
so many of them are in places that most people have never heard of had it not been for the tax haven being there. And they are, I suppose, economically reliant in an, ex an extreme way upon the tax haven continuing to be in place. I mean, if, if this ended, for instance, for the British Virgin Islands, BVI, they would suffer tremendous financial losses. And so obviously the vested interests in keeping it going are quite significant. Absolutely. That's the the incentive for um, many governments to set up tax havens within their country. It's, it's to provide employment, um, economic activity within the country. And uh, that may be considered to come at a cost of other places, but... Uh, you know, the lawyers and accountants and um, service providers, office managers, staff are all getting employed in these places that um, perhaps uh, other, otherwise wouldn't be. But uh, the, you've got to look at that from an international economy point of view and say whether or not there's a, a better way of, uh, of doing things. Have the, um, you know, revelations of the, uh, you know, the Panama Papers where so many companies and individuals were exposed essentially for having set up uh, overseas accounts, um, whistleblowers in Europe sending, you know, secret lists of clients to the newspapers, et cetera, et cetera. Have, have those played a significant role, do you think, in, uh, in slightly lessening the significance of tax havens? And if, if not, what else has played a role? Yeah, I think, I think things like the Panama Papers um, have opened up a whole... Uh, put a spotlight on a whole uh, range of activities that were previously happening behind closed doors. You know, not only um, getting the information in the public arena, but then things like um, the uh, international journalists getting together and um, you know breaking up those uh, uh, piles of papers and, and, and working on um, identifying names and then uh, making it much more um, country-specific has, mm -hmm. has just meant that there is a real focus on uh, what's been put through those tax havens that previously would never have happened, never would have right. you know, been able to identify particular individuals um, as being um, involved in tax havens. Um, the obligation to identify ultimate beneficial owners, which previously never really existed, but now any tax haven worth its salt is requiring people to do. You know the, the so previously, just for listeners that don't understand what that is, you could, in the past, quite widely establish a company in the name of the company, where it was impossible to actually trace the owner of the company. Is that correct? Yeah, there were plenty of orphans out there without any um, mothers or fathers behind them, you know, that uh, that just sat there um, either under a blind trust where no one was identified. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the, the directors um, had complete discretion on what to do with the, uh, the things coming up through the, uh, through, through the trust. Um, but these days, now you need to very much provide um, details of individuals who are the ultimate beneficial owners when you set something up. Mm -hmm. um, but I suppose there's still loopholes all over the place where this could happen. Y yeah. That, you, you that's, certainly what, that's what um, Zuckman argues, that you know, it, this is a thing that's happening, but it's still quite easy apparently to, to you know, follow the traditional path of international tax haven secrecy. You, you certainly need to, you know, provide details of an individual, and you know, you need to give them their passport or national ID card and their, um, you know, their their electricity bill to show where they live at home. Um, but whether or not that's mm. the actual owner is another question. So there's well, there's yeah, always ways around. And I think that's also an, an interesting phenomenon. Obviously, is that the people we're talking about here are not ordinary middle class people, or lower middle class people, or slum dwellers. We're talking really about this. One, global 1% effectively, the percent of the human race that has direct access to tax havens is quite slim, small number of people overall. And it's a system in which is created by wealthy elites in order to 
reduce their tax exposure ultimately at, at its core. I think we could both agree on that. Um, and I think it's an interesting moment just for whoever's listening to this to think, just think about the percentage of income tax that you paid last year, whether you're lower, lower income, middle income, upper middle income, or even high income, who's, who, you know, who, who plays the game honestly, you know, what percentage of your income did you give to the state in order for the state to be able to function effectively to provide services to everybody? And it's probably 10 or 20 or 30 and maybe 45. And maybe if you're Danish, 50 too. Um, when I, all those years that I lived in Holland, we paid 50% tax and, you know, and I was not making much money at that time. And you didn't even think twice about it. It was just part of life. It was completely accepted that that's what you would do. Um, you know, and I think that's another issue that needs to be addressed is that in high tax, so-called high tax jurisdictions, like the social welfare states of Scandinavia and Northern Europe and Germany, et cetera, France, um, to a certain extent, Australia, New Zealand, um, Canada, less so the United States where rates are lower. Um, there's a widespread ex acceptance by the population that taxes do need to be levied at a, at a level high enough that it will enable the state to act comprehensively in terms of its responsibilities towards its citizens. I mean, that's ultimately what it's all about. And excluding any funds from that overall system of taxation, particularly when we recall again that it's 8% of all household wealth hidden in tax havens, um, is really quite a significant thing. Yeah, I, I don't deny that, you know, there is an a, you know, a level of tax that needs to be paid. Um, and without that level of tax, you know, government can't function. And that level of tax is determined by, you know, particular governments. They set out the regime that's going to apply in their particular country. Um, but tax havens are set up for many reasons. You know, tax haven entities are set up for many reasons. Some of them purely tax, purely hiding stuff. I think those days are starting to disappear uh, tax haven companies and entities are often set up for other reasons, you know, mm -hmm. for, for um, you know, the, the 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 line that we often hear is, um, you know, I'm a I'm a a wealthy man, and um, if I don't um, hide some of my wealth, then uh, you know, I put myself and my family at risk of kidnapping. Right, sure. Well, I was just reading in the in the Zuckman book that thirty uh, percent or so of of uh, household wealth in Africa is has been placed in tax havens, and I suppose you know a lot of that is done to protect oneself from despotic regimes coming yeah. in power down the road who suddenly tax wealthy households at one hundred percent. That yeah. can very easily happen too, you know. So in that regard, you can at least see a, a very justifiable rationale behind doing it that's not only about hiding the income. It's about protecting what is legitimately earned by fully law-abiding citizens. Yeah, and there's nothing to say that a company, you know, that is set up in a recognised tax haven, that all of the income in that company is not being declared and tax paid on it in country. Mm -hmm. I think there are... You know, certainly Australia has got some very broad rules that that um, require local residents to do that. And if you're living in Australia and you have a respect for the law and you uh, have a respect for the government, then you will comply with those rules. Mm -hmm. and sure, plenty of us that are doing that. So, you know, another I think another interesting perspective is that you know jointly venturing the podcast and oneness world ultimately is about this whole question of world citizenship. Okay. And how we move from the world of nation states into a, a system whereby all of us ultimately share the same nationality, a radical concept to many, um, perhaps not as radical as it actually seems when you think it through and when you see what's going on in the world today in terms of international law, in terms of regional groupings, whereby for instance, uh, a European person has both ultimately a Dutch passport, but also in effect, a European passport. And in effect, they have acquired a European nationality. 
by virtue of being able to participate in the terms of the Schengen Agreement, which allow them to live in any other European country. So that's a step forward towards this. So it's not as far away or a distant dream as, as we may imagine. Um, but paradoxically, people who, you know, and I'm, I'm researching a book now about this question and I'm about halfway through. Um, and, you know, I've, I've scoured through literally hundreds and hundreds of, of books along these lines and, and hundreds of interviews with people. Um, you would be pr probably quite surprised to learn that most of the people who use the term global citizen or globalist or world citizen or anything of that nature today are not raving lefty loonies or old-time Marxists or internationalists or what have you, but they tend to be part of the ultra-global um, elite for whom national borders have absolutely no significance in terms of the way they live their lives. And they have conferences called the Global Gathering of Global Citizens and the, you know, the Global Gathering of World Citizens and so on and so forth. So they see the world already, the global elite, in effect as one entity of which they are a part, even though, of course, they carry a national passport. You know? So if they're able to live in that context, um, it's certainly got to be just as possible for everyone else to live in that context, but in a way that's fair and equitable, because certainly today the world is very far from being fair and equitable. When three billionaires have enough collective wealth between them to equal the collective wealth of the poorest half of humanity, we've got a problem on our hands. And part of that wealth is created and made possible by taxation systems that allow people in those groups to benefit. And, in a, in a world where it's more equitable and where all tax that should be paid is paid, um, we need to have structures in place that simply don't allow for that type of amassing of wealth in such few hands. And if anything is a, a trend over the last 40 years, it's that increasing concentration of wealth in fewer and fewer and fewer hands, truly creating a world of haves and, and have-nots. Yeah, I don't know that I agree that the tax system creates that that um, concentration of wealth it certainly you know there's a, there's a level of economic act activity that underlines that sits below that that mm -hmm. um, that I'd say is really the source um, you know the tax system may uh, have some impact um, but uh, I don't think it's 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 a, a, a certainly a, a cause of it, and I think from a practical point of view, the the issue of you know the the, the point you're raising about having a um, some sort of a, a, a global tax system, you know, I think mm -hmm. I think the, the governments around the world uh, value too highly their their fiscal levers, their ability to use their tax system to um, manipulate their own economies. Mm -hmm. You know, even here in Australia, we have we have so many concessions and incentives in our tax system that are all aimed at uh, either specific government policy or uh, you know hi historical anachronisms that uh, that become the um, the sacred cow that can't be touched. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I, I think a move to a, a global tax system is. Uh, there's too, there's too many um, interests that would uh, that would would prevent that from happening. Governments just don't have the incentive to do that. No, I totally see that point. And obviously, no state, no government wants to give up any element of its sovereignty in principle. Um, and taxation powers are obviously a really fundamental power of having sovereignty and jurisdiction over a given territory. Um, at the same time. You know, governments give up solid, uh, sovereignty all the time in the form of uh, international agreements and in international treaties that ultimately, not always saying it, but in actual fact, reducing the powers of discretion of the government concerned in order to comply with the terms of the treaty. And that applies across the board in, in all fields. You know, p countries are very willing to give up a degree of sovereignty, for instance, over international air travel because it's in their interest to do so. In, in certain matters of peace and security, they're willing to give up, 
give it up because it's in their interest to do so. In certain trade matters, they're willing to do it because it's in their interest to do so. So while I totally agree that states will not readily and, and very quickly um, allow those powers to reduce, it could be possible as one alternative just to think of as a stepping stone towards a, gl a more global system, in which was reasonably equitable. Um, for instance, to imagine something similar to the Tobin tax. Do you remember the proposals for a Tobin tax back in the 70s and 80s where they would tax um, all international currency exchanges? Um, I think it was about 1%. And then that would be, that would sort of, I believe, go to, I don't know if it went to the UN per se, but it was going to go to some international body that would then use it for development purposes, essentially building schools and creating energy projects, etc. So something like that, which every country could ultimately participate in at, at virtu with, with no pain, um, you know, really could be a stepping stone towards something broader whereby we actually had a global pot of money that was democratically decided upon how it would be used. You know, I mean, that's the ultimate objective of this idea. Whether it's feasible or not in the immediate term is another story. But, you know, our perspective at Oneness World would be simply that unless we do eventually reach the point where we see it to be in our collective interests to have ultimately one political jurisdiction with one nationality that we all shared, not at all renouncing anything to do with the way we live now in terms of our nationality, our culture, our religion, our interests, or whatever it may be that we're into. Um, it's very difficult to imagine um, a finite planet continuing on for tens of thousands of years of human civilization if there is a constant battle between so-called nation-states for an ever-declining pot of resources. Well, certainly there are, you know, even in the tax world, there are agreements between countries. And mm -hmm. Australia has signed many, many double tax agreements, but they, they tend more often than not to be bilateral, so simply mm -hmm. one country with another. Um, multilateral agreements are... Um, are more difficult, um, sure. and bilateral agreements are usually, you know, a matter of individual negotiation, give and take, to try and, you know, improve the position of each country rather than um, rather ra rather than for a sort of an overall gl global objective. Um, I think there are some initiatives at the moment that are sort of heading that way. So the the OECD is certainly moving ahead with um, something called the Base Erosion and Profit Shifting, BEPS mm -hmm. initiatives, which mm -hmm. are, are aiming to try and um, rule out uh, some of the most uh, egregious forms of, of tax avoidance and evasion um, and also to try and provide a... A more defined framework for the international tax system, so that there there are some some movements in that direction. But you know, there is even those initiatives, you know, which are aimed at trying to reduce the role of tax havens. You know, tax havens are moving and negotiating and finding ways in which they can continue, if not exactly business as usual, then you know slightly amended business as usual. Right. And, you know, we, we also have to not forget the fact that, you know, a very large number of countries around the world are not particularly based on the rule of law. Um, a lot of countries are far from perfect when it comes to democratic principles. A lot of countries are run by despots um, and dictators. And for an ordinary citizen, an honest, law-abiding citizen in those countries to trust the national authorities to spend their tax money in the appropriate manner without being corrupt is quite obvious. So, you know, we do need to remember that the ability of a country to have an effective taxation system, which is fair, legitimate, corruption-free, fraud-free, with an assurance to the citizens that pay that it's going to be spent on building roads and building hospitals instead of going into the pocket of a kleptocrat is a really big issue still. Yeah, and doesn't your 
country come up with a hadn't it come up with a phrase something about uh, taxation without representation so (laughs) you know (laughs) you really want to have some sort of control over where you know part of your your earnings is disappearing to certainly Um, certainly uh, and when you know when you live in a corrupt country um you know corruption means many things and has many different definitions but when one lives in a highly corrupt country where a bribe is necessary in order to get a phone line installed or a bribe is necessary in order to get attack attached to the uh, you know uh, municipal water system so on and so forth um, and you know if you don't pay that bribe you're not going to get those services because the state is not able to provide them because the taxation base that they have is so low that they don't have the resources even if they're honest uh, to be able to provide those things on a widespread basis it's understandable why people don't trust taxation authorities in many countries. And I, you know, I think it's tremendously important to remember that um, at the same time, not to use that as a justification for the continued existence of tax havens, because of course, even though the tax haven reality is declining and the restrictions are increasing, um, all you really need is one. Even if if there, I think there's 29 main tax havens in the world now. If you shut down 28 of them and you left one open, that one is going to be inundated by all the ones that can't use the other 28 now. So you, you either allow this system to continue or you have to literally end the practice entirely and come up with something else, which is a bit more transparent, for instance. Yeah, or, or allow a level of control and, you know, which is where we're heading at the moment. We're, mm-hmm. we're, you know, a greater degree of transparency. Um, you know, as we talked about before, having corporate entities in various places can be used for a whole bunch of reasons and not mm-hmm. necessarily... doesn't just, have to be nefarious. Just, you know, stashing money in a bank account. That, that might have been the process many, many years ago. But uh, these days, you know, there's a whole bunch of changes, including the um, US... Um, FATCA rules, um, these BEPS processes that I talked about before. There's a whole bunch of international moves that are that are meaning the, the spotlight's really on tax havens. Yep. Um, and, you know, corporates, uh, talking to my own experience, you know, large corporates investing in challenging jurisdictions um, often use them to try and obtain a bit of clarity. And, you know, the, the country that I spend a fair bit of time working with India. Mm-hmm. You know, as a foreign investor in India, mm-hmm. uh, if you're coming from a country that does not have a comprehensive double tax agreement with India, mm-hmm. um, then it's 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 really hard because you're you're competing against you know a, 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 a corporate system, a, you know, at at a, a tax. Um, system that really is aimed at the locals mm-hmm. and the locals use a form of uh, influence that most foreign companies simply cannot and will not partake in. Mm-hmm. And um, so then you're looking to try and find a way in which you can you know, even out the, um, the, the, the pitch and using tax havens... Um, can sometimes give you that because if the tax haven has a uh, comprehensive double tax agreement with India, which is better than the one that your country has, then you're in a you're in a better position. So that's mm-hmm. that's the reason why Mauritius, this tiny little island in the Indian Ocean, yep. you know, at one stage was about seventy uh, percent of the foreign direct investment into India, because anyone that was going into India was using Mauritius mm-hmm. because of its double tax agreement. Yeah, right. And um, you know that's. That's not being done to um, to hide money or to uh, shift it anywhere. It was just trying to add a bit of clarity to the position. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. At the same time, there's definitely a relationship between the level of authoritarian political dominance in a given country and the uh, wishes of the elite classes in that country to expatriate their money to safer jurisdictions for fear of what the authoritarian regime may do with it. And I think that's a, a huge issue in the world today. And you see it in 
you know, some of the largest economies of the world, whereby they may benefit greatly by doing business in that country as nationals of that country, but they certainly don't have confidence in the government not getting its hands on it. Yeah, well, certainly, um, uh, I know a number of British Virgin Island providers that have all of their documents in Mandarin. Um, mm -hmm. I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure. And similarly, Cypriot companies that uh, have um, everything in Russian. So, right, sure, sure. You know, there's plenty of examples out there where where uh, there's a number of reasons why these uh, companies are being used. Yeah, absolutely. And, I, you know, I think people in other countries that don't have to do that now because they do have a reasonably transparent democratic system might think differently if their system uh, slowly became more authoritarian. So, you know, you, you can understand the motivation. Um, at the same time, I think ultimately it really comes down to the question of transparency. It's like it's not that horrendous of a concept to move one's money into another country as long as it's known about and as long as it's treated as wealth belonging to a citizen of that country who's probably still a resident of that country and who should probably pay a fair, their fair share of tax um, on that wealth. Uh, again, it's up to individual countries to determine what's the appropriate way. So, you know, being a resident of Australia, then I know that my worldwide income is subject to tax. Mm -hmm. Whereas if I'm a resident in Hong Kong, then it's only my Hong Kong sourced income, which is taxable in, in Hong Kong. And that's, you know, that's a, that's a specific um, feature of the Hong Kong tax system. So and that's why a lot of people move to Hong Kong, I suppose. And that, Singapore, it's the same system there, isn't it? That, that and the 15% tax rate is certainly very uh, Right. They have a flat tax in, in Hong Kong, I believe, right? 15% for everyone notwithstanding your income. Uh, that's individual taxes. Mm -hmm. uh, corporate tax rate's slightly higher, 16.5. Um, Ooh, 16.5. <laughs> Heavy. <laughs> right. But, but, you know, that's why there's, you know, there's obviously quite a bit of competition between Singapore and Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Singapore has dropped its rate down now to, um, to to be competitive with Hong Kong. Are they at the same level of income tax rates? Uh, like personal income tax in Singapore? Singapore same as Hong Kong? Singapore has slightly different provisions um, and has lots of um, thresholds that you have to go through. But uh, I, I, sorry, I can't... Uh, you don't know the numbers? No, yeah, I don't that's know okay. the numbers. But you, so you, you were mentioning some of the Pacific Island states as tax havens. Um, is that still going on? I thought those were kind of coming to an end. Well, you'd, you'd have to be a bit embarrassed as a director of a, you know, of a listed company. If you look down your list of uh, jurisdictions in which you had subsidiaries and you saw the name Cook Islands or... Is the Cook other. Islands considered a tax haven officially? Uh, yes. Yeah, right. Yeah, it has and it's a, kind of got a free association status with New Zealand. Yeah, foreign. I think in terms of defense, and uh, one other key uh, government function, I can't recall. But um, they're not technically independent, though, are they? Cook Islands. I think they're uh, sort of a so like semi-sovereign. Yeah, I'm not a sure. formal relationship with New Zealand, but not totally sovereign. I'm not certain exactly. But yeah, they have a sure. unique status. I'm not sure. Kind of like no. the Åland Islands between. Finland and Sweden and a number of places like that that have this kind of interim status. Yeah, I'm and Norfolk Island, of a, which is Australian territory, used to have some unique tax uh, qualities. Do you know about Norfolk Island? Mm, not in the thirty years that I've been practicing in tax. So, oh, really? I thought yeah. there was some special uh, jurisdiction that they had that was distinct from the Australian mainland. Yeah, I can't help you. Oh, okay, right. I mean, there are there are plenty of jurisdictions that. You know, have an you know an offshore regime, um, Mauritius and Seychelles uh, are commonly used, and you know, you can set up a company there, and and mm -hmm. um, you know they have a local tax system, but they basically have completely different rules which apply to their offshore companies, and um, you know they're still being used for, for for lots of reasons, including the ones we talked about before that are sort of commercial and. Mm -hmm. involving investment. Well, I'm still thinking back to that whole idea of a, of a global taxation structure that was f far short of a 
sort of global government taxation structure, but something that involved, let's just say, $5 per person per year that would go into some global fund that could be used for some very, very necessary social service. So 8 billion people virtually times 5, $40 billion a year in an internationally administered, totally transparent um, pot of money that could be used for some pressing need, could be disease-related, could be slum reduction-related. People used to say that for $100 billion, you could absolutely improve every single slum in the world up to a, an adequate level of housing for all of the 1 billion slum dwellers of the world. So two and a half years of a fund like this could basically end slums as we know them and turn them into much more healthy, vibrant, viable, secure, safe communities. What do you think about doing something like that as an interim step towards a more global tax system? Do you think that's something that could work? But by the time you spend the um, $8 a person that you need to collect the $5, um, you know, there's, there's a, I, I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm anxious about a, a system that involves... Um, well, and the $5 that it takes to do the international transaction, yeah. right? <laughs> so $13 to get five. Yeah, yeah right. That so so there's, work, there's a whole bunch of, obviously there's a whole bunch of practical re reasons why that system would would struggle with the system that we have now. Um, you know, whether you get uh, the developed countries to kick into that, but, you know, you just look at funding for the UN and, you know, how how much of a um, a fight that is to try and, get, try and get funding for the UN from some of the larger... Uh, well, you know, they used to say, because, you know, I, I work a lot for the UN and they used to say that it's probably not true anymore, but um, back when I started doing UN-related things in the 80s, um, that the, the budget of the International Secretariat of the UN in New York was the same as the budget for the New York City Fire Department. You know, so this entity that's meant to cure all the world's problems had the same budget <laughs> as one big city's fire department, right? So, yeah, that's totally true. But I, I'm just, I haven't really thought about this issue that much. But the more I think about it, I mean, as 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 a symbol of international solidarity that would be effectively painless for most people, um, certainly the wealthier half of humanity, um, be quite painful for people from Rwanda and, and sure. Chad and, and Burkina Faso and places like that where the yeah. income levels are lower. Um, but nonetheless, just as a symbolic step in effect, you could grade it, you know, it could be go down to five cents for the poorest of countries. Um, just to give people a sense that they're actually contributing to helping collectively solve some of the most intractable problems, I think would would almost invariably have a positive impact on increasing uh, a more unified position of our species. Yeah, I can. I, and you could add more if you wanted. I, I mean, I, I'd put a thousand in. You know? Yeah, I can say. I just, you know, if I'm an a farmer in Indonesia and I'm contributing to, you know, I'm living on subsistence and I'm contributing to cleaning out a... a um, slum in Jakarta. A, a, right? a, a slum yeah. in New Delhi. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that I'm going to feel overly enthusiastic about that. I think. Yeah, I can imagine that. I think sure. we've, we've got to... Well, we've got to start somewhere, right? Yeah. I mean, you know... You, we have gone from a world where a significant proportion of the human race encountered regular famine and certainly regular malnourishment and, and regular hunger. Um, that percentage has declined dramatically in the last 50 years um, to the lowest level as a percentage of the human race th than ever before, you know? So there have been like these gigantic macro level strides that have been made with almost no fanfare. I mean, we've eradicated smallpox and other diseases that were prevalent, killing and harming millions of people per year. There's these gigantic leaps that really have been made. Um, so, you know, I think there is there is in all people uh, the objective of comfort, basically, of not suffering. I mean, that's a basic human quality. I don't want to suffer. I don't want my family to suffer. I don't want my community to suffer. And once you reach a certain level of 
physical comfort, then you can start thinking more about more compassionate responses to other people's suffering, etc. So I think something like this, I'm going to pursue this more and think about this more and write about it more. The idea of a, of a, a voluntary, maybe no, don't even make it mandatory, just a voluntary contribution scheme that could be administered by every national government. You could put it on the tax form or whatever um, that was put into a, a global pot and not just making a contribution to an organization or whatever charity like is in place now, mm. um, but something that was truly global in nature. And it might start off only raising, who knows, you know, $200,000 in the first year. Um, but if it was actually effective and it, found, it was found to be a way of, of tackling what are seen to be intractable growing problems, you know, the latest predictions, if we stick with slums, the, the latest predictions are that one third of the world's population will be living in slums by 2050. And you could argue that that's an underestimate um, given global trends in terms of both climate change and income inequality. So that's a serious problem for a very large number of people. And unless brand new approaches are taken, I just don't see it being solved. Sounds like we need more than $5 a head then. And, um, but uh, I look forward to hearing about the lecky tax as, uh, oh, yeah, right. as things develop. Yeah, right. Well, I think, you know, I think a lot, a lot of, I think virtually all of the answers for all of the world's problems are, are already known. It's just a question of making them happen. And, you know, we're living in a political era where, uh, the backward steps are starting to outnumber the forward steps for the first time in quite a long time, whether it's measured in terms of democracy or authoritarianism or income equality or climate change or whatever issue you want to focus on. There's a lot of backward steps um, going on, but, you know, trying to put a positive spin on it, a lot of backward steps actually facilitate the emergence of positive steps when people see that re we really shouldn't be doing these backward steps. You know, we need to go forward again. Yeah, like we've got rid of, you know, or reduced the famine issue, but um, developing countries are facing this obesity um, epidemic that we keep hearing about. That's so right, that's right. And uh, the eternal question of population levels. Yeah. I mean, how? what is the carrying capacity of planet Earth when it comes to human beings that want to live a modern consumerist life? And, you know, we, we certainly don't have enough. And as we've said on the podcast before, you know, a lot of uh, scientists and others who have thought deeply about this question say that, you know, one and a half to two planets is required in order for everybody to live at the level of somebody living in the, in the wealthier countries. And obviously we aren't going to get that. So how do we reach that point without being too intrusive in terms of uh, telling people what to do when it comes to procreation? Yeah, we've, We've strayed from tax, Scott. <laughs> more people, more taxpayers, right? Perhaps. Yeah, that's right. So, okay, just as a, um, just to conclude, then. So, where where do you see things going in the, the short to medium term when it comes to taxation? You think there's going to be continuing, um, approach globally to more transparency, sort of less tax havens, more accountability more acquisition of funds uh, paid from, you know, bank accounts that didn't formally get taxed? Or where do you see things going generally? Are you hopeful? Are you yeah, sh I, I am. Short to medium term, you know, the the amount of transparency that exists, you know, the, the fact that um, records are being kept on computers that are searchable or uh, disclosable rather than, you know, in, in ink-bound ledgers uh, hidden in vaults. Um, you know, information is 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 uh, more readily available. Um, the tax authorities are uh, more intuitive and more focused. You know, certainly countries like um, the US, um, the OECD countries, Australia, Japan, they're all very much focused on what's happening outside their borders. Um so I think, you know, from a disclosure point of, of, of view, the rules have changed. You know, there's more obligations on taxpayers to, to, um, to disclose exactly what they have, where they have it. Um, so I think, you know, the, 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 the dim, dark days of the use of tax havens are, um, are coming to an end as the spotlight gets shone on them. Right. Well, that is indeed a pretty positive way to end. So... Dino, thank you so much for today. It was absolutely enlightening. And, um, 
you know, once again, we would urge um, jointly venturing listeners to think about all these taxation issues from your own personal vantage point and how you personally um, are in one way or another, not just a citizen, but also a taxpayer and a contributor to the collective wealth of society and how we got into a situation where there's still so many extremely wealthy companies and individuals who are paying not anywhere near their fair share and, and how that makes you feel and how that influences who you might vote for in the next election, wherever it is um, you live. So that wraps up episode 19. Um, episode 20 will be coming soon, and that is an interview with Peter Georgieski of the Global Dialogue Foundation, uh, an organization dedicated to uh, many things, but primarily the establishment in parallel to the UN General Assembly of a People's Assembly or, a, or an Assembly of World Civilizations that would essentially represent civil society in the manner by which the United Nations General Assembly represents um, nation states. So yet again, another step towards um, the oneness world that all of us dream of and step by step may one day live to see um, come to fruition. And just as a last word, um, a special thanks and special shout out to Jordan Backer and Sid Varasari and Al Jeffries for organizing an extraordinary event on the weekend called The Clearing, um, which was a all-day event about sacred activism uh, hosted by Integral Melbourne in Australia. I urge you all to look that up and try to attend future sessions because this was a fantastic event organized by fantastic people. So with that, we um, bid you farewell, and we'll see you again soon on Jointly Venturing. Thanks for listening, everyone. Bye now. Thank you.